Justin Dry's business career is very much like a good bottle of wine. The culmination of years of meticulously mastering a craft and blending that knowledge into something that improves with age. In this episode of Discipline, proudly brought to you by Edison Partners, Justin covers the highs and numerous lows of getting to where he is now, CEO of Vino Mofo, a great brand and a great showcase for how one business model can be brilliantly adapted to dominate different verticals. This episode should be mandatory listening for any entrepreneur. Success, failure, capital raising, failed deals, successful M&A, buyback, and then master of one's domain. It's an incredible journey, and I don't think that it's caught just yet. Enjoy our discussion. Justin Dry, co-founder and CEO, Vino Mofo, welcome to Discipline. Thank you for having me. When you were a young lad growing up in Adelaide, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, God. Uh, first, probably a sports star. I was like madly into cricket and football, Aussie rules. And I was, I was pretty good at them until about 14 when I peaked. And uh, I needed a new career path from there. But the other, the other thing was uh, I was always interested in business. So I, I started my first business when I was 10. Pa- paper round, lawn mowing? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, lawn mowing, washing cars. And then, uh, you know, and the second one was Christmas trees. I bought and sold Christmas trees just oh, before nice. Christmas, yeah. which I later found out that one of my... Um, heroes uh when i was growing up richard branson um had done too so i was like oh that's cool um but uh you know i'd always been surrounded by business talk my dad was an entrepreneur had mixed success and failures and uh but it was always a topic of conversation so it was either business or sports and i peaked at sports so it had to be business all right that was my next question what what were you particularly good at at school then if after uh you know your peak at 14 in the first 18 what what did you then sort of excel at or start to enjoy yeah look i loved science uh biology was a thing i was naturally really good at maths but i didn't really like it so uh you know my school was devastated when i decided to give up maths one and two in my later years because i was one of the guys that naturally just did it really well but biology i was really fascinated by uh i wanted to be I think one of the things that I considered if you, there was a, you know, a, a way to build a business out of it um, was astronomer. Um, oh, right. I loved okay. astronomy. I, I had a, uh, had a uh, telescope uh, that I used to stare into all the time. I just loved space and I follow, you know, now I'm, I'm, uh, I still, you know, follow NASA. I think the images that they post all the time are beautiful. I just, I love that whole thing, but it's not, you know, so probably science and maths I was naturally good at because I'm one of those really slow readers too. It's really annoying when I, you know, like I don't like I don't like sucking at things, but it's I like I I'm a pretty slow reader and like have to really think about um, when I'm writing. So it's one of those things. It's, yeah, I'm just not great at it. Well, the good news is that you know entrepreneurs therefore are cut from a range of different cloths and skill sets. Uh, there's no one one size fits all if you want to go into business and uh, try your hand at that. Exactly. Um, now, this is uh, a no-bullshit podcast. What drove your love of wine over beer or Jack Daniels in your formative years? Look, it, it, it was part of, it was in, like, DNA. I guess my some of my ancestors planted some of the first vines in the Barossa. Uh, so it's, it's, it's in the blood. I didn't really, I mean, there weren't direct families. Um, 
like in the closed circuit, but the uh, but connected enough. And my closest circle, which is my two of my uncles, were in the wine industry. One was on the science side. Um, the other, I guess, the science as well, but um, focused on viticulture. Yep. And when I uh, would go to family gatherings, these two uncles would circle me and make me do blind tastings when I was a teenager and try and give them the, uh, you know, vintage and region and variety. And, you know, I didn't even and, drink wine back then. And, and and how many hours of sunlight the grapes got a day? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was all, uh, you know, Peter, my uncle who was a viticulturist, was a lecturer at Adelaide Uni and Roseworthy, which is the main kind of university for it back then. It's moved to Wake Campus now, but... Anyway, very famous university and very well-known viticulturist and lecturer. Um, and uh, he used to talk to me about sunshine hours in all the different regions and all the different varieties. And um, he actually taught me at uni, which was hilarious. He, he, was, he, he, was, a, he was quite a, I don't want to say mean, but he was <laughs> quite a strict <laughs> lecturer. <laughs> Uh, like I love him. He's, we, we've got a good, great relationship uh, through the years and now. But he, he was, he was, he was quite strict. Then, especially because I was family. So I ended yeah. up studying wine at university uh, after being pressured into the tasting wine. Wine marketing. Yeah, I did. I did wine marketing that then evolved into um, some making subjects. But I finished the wine marketing part of that. It, I can't remember what the degree was called oh. in the end. It, 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 it changed into something else but they originally started as wine marketing and evolved into something else oh, it's come a long way it's obviously been a bit of a north star for you for a long time um what about business you know you you worked for a while with a good good mate a family mem- member andre eichmar um how did you two decide uh, to get into business together well so i had been obviously as i said starting business since i was a kid and then I think by the time I was about 23, I had been in the wine industry for a long time. I was like, oh, I need a bit of a break um, from wine. I'm not sure if it's a passion or a profession. So I, uh, the other kind of interest for me at the moment was like, you know, financial markets, any kind of property, um, uh, shares, you know, it, it was all quite interesting to me. I found it all fascinating. So I ended up going studying financial markets and becoming a stockbroker. Yeah, uh, for for a couple of years, and that was during the tech boom. So um, you know, I've, as everything I touched turned to gold, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> and I look like a bloody genius to all my friends uh, until the tech crash a couple until of years later. Until the year two thousand, I was still there. I was still there, and I was like, "This is not so fun." And decided to uh, go into property after that. And so I was, you know, I did uh, property development. And did all right out of that uh, for a few years. So I'd done a couple of things. So, you know, I was wine and then I was um, a stockbroker and then into property development. And then um, I went through a kind of hard period where I um, went guarantor for someone, lost a whole bunch of money. And I was like, oh, this is not great. Um, I, I would like to kind of get back into the wine industry again. Um, I'd missed it. So uh, that was the start of that thought process. And at the same time, I travelled uh, globally, I was I was just uh, backpacking through South America to get some, you know, a fresh perspective and a bit of a break from what I'd just gone through. Nice. And I came yeah. across uh, this thing called Facebook, and that was yeah. in about 2006. Uh, some friends that I was travelling with, who are American, invited me to be friends on that. And so I, was like, oh, I think this is going to be big. Uh, and I was like, oh, maybe I could do something around this, like network, social networks, and wine. I really want to get back into wine. This whole online things happening, 
and it's speeding up pretty quickly. That would be cool. So I came back from South America after about six months over there and was like, oh, I, I want to get into this online wine thing. I'm going to do a Facebook for wine. And so then I came back and Andre was married to my sister at the time and uh, I, we were having a family Christmas and I was like, I've got this really great idea. And then he's like, oh, we'll actually come outside to their like uh, garage, his office at the time at their place in Adelaide and I went out and he'd been working on something similar but not right. the same, so like a wine review site because he was cool. passionate about wine. But this was his first kind of uh, play in the wine space. He'd been working at a company called Cellar Masters yeah. um, on the phones in Sydney and so that was his kind of um, touch with the wine industry and then he moved to Adelaide. Obviously, Adelaide's pretty big in the wine world and he was like, oh, I want to do something in this space uh, more. And, uh, and so he'd come up with this idea. I think he was going to call it Red Cellar at the time. And so then my idea and his idea, we had a few bottles of wine and thought it was a really good idea to go into business together. <laughs> and, um, and then the first kind of three or four iterations of that business were good but not great in terms of, you know, we got some real audience um, and got some real traction. First one was called Quaff. Second one was called Road to Vino, which was like this, we jumped, we bought a combi, travel around Australia, tasting wines and filmed it and tried to get sponsorship, um, yeah. which we did. Um, and that kind of built our network of wine producers. Then next we launched um, the Great Australian Wine Adventure, which is like a mobile check-in app. So we had like Quaff, Road to Vino, uh, Great Australian Wine Adventure, and then all three kind of combined into Vino Mofo. Right, so four, okay. So four pretty average years, but slightly better each one. Yep. And, um, you know, and we we're building firstly an audience, second a network of producers, and then uh, third was about kind of deals and offers based on location. And then the fourth one combined them all together in Vino Mofo, and that was in 2011, and that one worked, obviously. So there was, you know, there's obviously a few uh, false steps and, and trial and error and a few things that, you know, didn't, go your way you know in coming up with the the vino mofo when you've as an entrepreneur encountered business failures or things haven't gone as planned i mean i suppose you know to to set it off you're traveling around drinking wine so it's not all bad um but looking back what do you what do you think what do you think you learned what do you really take out of these sort of missteps oh look i think you learn a lot every time you know i and different things i've learned so much and you know, I, I'm not one of those people that says, you know, I have no regrets because I certainly have a few, but you can't change them. So there's no point in dwelling on them, uh, you know, and but I wouldn't be who I am today and I wouldn't have learned the things I have if I hadn't gone through them. You know, it's simple as, you know, who you're trying to serve when you launch a business, you know, like in the early days, we built these sites uh, thinking from our side of things as opposed to customer view. And so I think that was an important lesson. I think, um, also, learning that business failure and success shouldn't be attached to your own um, uh, perspective on on self worth. Uh, you know, it's 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 a business. It's not you. And and sometimes it's you know you've got to stick at things long enough because most of the time you know people give up a little bit too early. But on the flip side of that, if you're just silly and stubborn and you stick at things that just don't work, it's a waste of bloody time too. So. I think like yeah. recognizing recognizing um, what you need to look for to work out whether this is a good idea <laughs> and um, and also not being so attached to the success of a particular model or business um, because of it's so tied into your self-worth 
um, is an issue and you need to get past that because the best entrepreneurs and the most successful people that I know and I've read about um, and you hear about are those that have had a lot of failure yeah. before they finally got to the success. And even the ones you hear about and you think it's a, it was a one hit or it was an overnight success, drill down a little bit and um, it's a 10-year journey um, full of lots of ups and downs. So I just, Funny. you know... I, yeah, it's funny uh, you say that. I actually got my son. I was gonna, as you were talking, I was saying, "Oh, Justin, I wish you could come across and have a chat to my twelve-year-old about, uh, you know, a bit of persistence." But I started him on a book. I got the the bookcase of business books behind me, and uh, one of the books I got him reading was a hundred great businesses and their and their story. Yeah, right. And every one, you know, these incredible brand names you read, it's all 10, 12, 20 years in the making. Uh, a lot of them spring up and you go, wow, that's come out of nowhere. But yeah. all of them have this incredible backstory of persistence, of pivoting, product market fit, all the things that have these, you know, catchphrases in 2020. But at the time, it's, you know, this organic process of trying to find what the customer wants, pivoting the business model, trying something different. And eventually, yeah. if you're dexterous enough, maybe lucky enough, uh, can stay in the ring long enough, results will come. It's exactly right. And, you know, you, the reason we, you only hear about them, later, you know, because they all kind of start like this and they start getting some traction here, you know, five, six, seven years, and then all of a sudden it's like this and then the, the public hears about it and it's like, bing, and people think that that was, you know, <laughs> that yeah. that had happened in the last couple of years and it very rarely is. Um, that the case, so it's it's, it's very very true. And the lessons you learn, the lessons you learn in that the early times, are generally because you blunder your way through, and you kind of hit upon them, as opposed to really smart strategic decisions. <laughs> takes a while to learn, you know, to grow out of the stupid. You have to puzzle through and muddle through. Yeah, it's so important. And the thing is, nothing is as good as experience. And especially the you know the ups and downs. Like even when you have really smart people around you, there's so many lessons you just have to learn yourself. You know, I've I'm, I've got a lot of very smart friends that have done remarkably well, and I'm sure plenty of them have told me along the way that um, you know things that I should and shouldn't be thinking about, and I've still made the same mistakes. Yeah. We all do. Yeah. So um, you know, there, there's there's some there's some, there's some help and some guardrails potentially, but there's so much power in learning it yourself. Um, and sometimes you just don't see it. Sometimes you have to go through the pain. You have to go really, really deep to understand. And the other thing is I think people um, can get caught up in success and get caught up in the really good bits when they start getting a role. Uh, and this huge danger when you take your eyes off the prize and you actually detach yourself from the detail. And it's one of the things that you learn the longer you go that you really still have to be deeply involved and knowledgeable in your space. And what about uh, then looking back at some of that advice you have been given? You said earlier you, you had a few regrets. Do you ever have one phrase or piece of advice advice resonating, floating around in your head going, shit, I wish I listened to that? Oh, <laughs> probably a lot. Uh, you know what? Look, I think... Uh, People are one of the um, real challenges in business and uh, and it seems, you know, like the culture is you and your founder or you and your small team when you start and then as you get, as you scale up, the 
that you're still such an influential part of that. And as you scale up even further, then people start getting in different rooms, different locations around the world. It's harder to maintain. So I think the time and energy around people and the fact that great people can make a business and people that aren't necessarily aligned culturally can break a business. Yeah. Um, you know, it's they're incredibly powerful. That is so. People is really important in in that um, in that kind of way of thinking. And then I reckon, you know, off the top of my head, thinking about some of the things I wish I'd been told. Um, you know, focus on what the customer actually wants, not what you want to build um, necessarily. <laughs> um, you know, know the details. Like, really know the details. Like, go as deep as you can. Um, to really understand absolutely all of the things in your business as much as you can because um, it's your business. You know, you've got to understand those things. You can't, there's a real um, risk in handing it over and not knowing the details. You know, I'm, I don't believe in doing everything, but I, I, I believe in knowing enough that someone can't bullshit me. Yeah, I used to have a sign on my door. I've probably said it a few times on this podcast. I used to have a sign on my door when I closed the door and the sign would be in front of me was inspect, don't expect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was, yeah, and that was, that came along the hard way, that sign. Uh, uh, yeah, it does for everyone, I think. Yeah. And what about back to Vino Mofo then? So as you're coming along and, and you know, sort of uh, morphed into Vino Mofo from these other iterations, wh- where was the point? Was there an actual eureka moment where you go i think we've nailed this we've actually got we're onto something we've got a business here yeah there there was when we launched it we launched with a probably a few thousand people as a pre-sign up because we'd kind of promoted it through the other different channels we'd had the other businesses that we had launched previous and had built our audiences with so we launched with about a couple of thousand i think it was at the time and we gave them like a foundation membership sign up now to be a foundation member and this gives you a whole bunch of cool things you know you've got a key ring you've got i think free shipping um and a whole bunch of other stuff and so we had the pre-sign up so like, oh this is getting some good traction it's the right time in the market for this um it was feeling good and then on day one we sold more wine which was only about 40 three cases I think it was all the time we sold more wine in that one day with our one offer than we had in the previous month wow. and we're like whoa this is this is cool but oh yeah I imagine we've probably saturated our entire audience now and that'll be it you know and then on day two we did did the second offer because it was like a deal a day back then yeah and yeah. we did a second offer and we sold even more than the first day and we're like wow Oh my God. Okay. Now we've definitely saturated the audience. Um, and then day three, we sold even more. And then awesome. day four, we sold even more. And we're like, Oh wow, this is incredible. We're this, we feel like we're onto something here. This is actually getting really exciting, but we, but we were also like very mindful that this could all stop tomorrow yeah. because we weren't sure when the audience was going to be full, you know? Um, but the numbers kept climbing, the sales kept getting bigger uh, and so probably very early we thought we were on something, but we were always, in, I guess, in the, in the back of our minds going, when, like, can it keep going, I think, you know? Can this actually keep going? And, and what do you think you were onto? I mean, there's, for a while there's been online wine retailers, you know, there's always been the offers from, you know, Qantas have had their, you know, wine offers. What exactly do you think you tapped into at the right time? Oh, look, I think it was we had uh, an audience that were younger. They wanted to 
think about, talk about, experience wine in a different way. So we were the first ones to kind of come into the industry to disrupt that in Australia. Um, it was all around this no bow ties, no BS. We love wine, be passionate, but don't be a wanker. That was the kind of brand. <laughs> and and we've been talking about that since um, Quaff. And so in, you know, uh, 2006 or thereabouts and each business since. So we were just talking about wine a different way. And when we launched Road to Vino, which was that second in line of those businesses, we got sponsored by Wine Australia because they're like, no one in the industry is talking about wine this way, but we need to be talking about wine this way because um, we're putting off the younger generation of getting into wine because we're talking about it in an old stuffy bow ties and BS. Uh, saw and, the demographic uh, coming through and saw yeah. you appealing to that. And so yeah. we catch them now, we've got customers for life. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so we did that and... Um, and then obviously with that show, we travel around and, you know, all we wanted to do, I guess it's similar to podcasts these days. It's a great way to meet people and get connected and, and you reach out to the people you want to get connected to, you're inspired by. Um, and for us and that show, we just reached out to all the cool people in the wine industry. So we're like either they were going to be the legends like the Peter Lehmans, you know, um, yeah. who's since passed or whether it's up and coming rock stars who are legends like Andrew Thomas. So we basically wrote down all the names on a piece of paper and went, who are the people that we really want to hang out with and get to know? And that's how we filmed it. So, and we did that. And so we did that for a couple of years and we hung out with Peter Lehman and Marg um, at what is effectively known as the Barossa boardroom, you know, their dining table and talked about stuff for hours and hours and drank that's, too much. And then awesome. you know, I, I fell asleep on on, you know, uh, after long lunches, on couches at people's houses that I just met that were rock stars in the industry and had great time hanging out with all these cool people. And so that kind of built our network. So you kind of had this, like, this, this kind of way of doing things and speaking and this younger audience that um, weren't attracted to the old way of doing things. So we were appealing to those. Then we built this incredible network. And then with on both on top of both of those, we created this um, group buying daily deals type thing, which was new to the space. We were the first one in there doing that. And so we had the audience, we had the producers, and then we um, had the business model finally because back then it was, I think the fastest growing company globally was Groupon. Yes. And so I was like, all right, so our business models so far, like, We've built audience, we've built networks, but the business models have sucked a little bit. So I know that this business model works really well because I've seen it and globally it's the fastest growing business in the history of mankind. So I was like, cool, let's bring that model into our space with our network um, and that's what we did. So it was the first of its kind uh, and when we launched it just took off, got heaps of press, um, we got heaps of referral. Like yeah. our, our, new, our biggest source of new customers was referral yes. for a really long time until our budget started, get, started getting extremely high in terms of marketing. Um, but for the very early days, it was all referral. I remember when you launched, I remember a lot of people talking to me about Vino Mofo, Vino Mofo, you got to get some wine from Vino Mofo. I mean, it's great to have that kind of virality in, uh, in a new business. Yeah, well, we had all the things kind of come together at once. So we, because we were talking to a younger audience and because we were younger ourselves back then, um, we were, you know, the first onto the platforms within our space. So we were the first ones to do live Twitter streams around wine globally. We were the first ones to do um, Facebook uh, and go deep in that. We were the first ones to, you know, get involved in any of the new platforms popping up, like the location-based apps um, for wine, for the wine space. So... 
Um, so we're heavily into the platforms that have now become huge that were very much where our audience was playing. Um, and we leveraged those um, before anyone else within our space. So we had like this great business model, this great network, this great younger audience, and we're also very early into all the platforms. So you combine all of those things and the virality, the PR, yeah. and all those things combined to uh, build the company really quickly. Exceptional timing. And it also goes to show, I mean, you know, with those Groupon uh, offers, the, the sort of the category was very broad and what you were able to do was, uh, which is really interesting, is take the same sort of business model in a sense or marketing model of a, a deal a day kind of thing, apply it to a very deep and narrow niche. I mean, wine in itself is a, is a broad category, but across all categories and replicate it with incredible success. I think there's a huge amount of lessons for people starting a business that you can take a broader concept and fire it into a, a niche uh, and still create an incredibly uh, big, deep business. Yeah, and it's about, it's absolutely a great lesson there. And it's one of the, uh, the things that I think about is like learning from industries outside of yours. What's everyone else doing? Don't just stay looking at your own, um, you know, and see what you can pull in the lessons, the learnings, the models um, from other spaces. And that's one of those things. The other thing, you've got to be careful when you niche things too. You know, it's got to be the right model to niche. Like the, our first business um, was uh, Quaff, and that's Facebook for wine. We niched Facebook into a wine industry. You know what? The business model sucked <laughs> because when you niche Facebook into such a uh, such a kind of limited vertical uh, in terms of advertising dollars and eyeballs, which is what Facebook relies on, right? Uh, but compared to the business model of Groupon, it worked. The business model of Facebook, it didn't because it yeah. wasn't wide and broad and deep enough. Um, yeah. But whereas when you bring in a model that does work, it's fantastic. So yes, look to spaces outside, but also um, you've got to judge them based on how relevant and how useful they are within your own space. And speaking though of Groupon and that kind of business model, uh, early days, I understand you sold uh, Vino Mofo to uh, Gabby and Hezzy, uh, catch of the day, uh, and a big share of the business. What, what was the thinking there? What, why, why the sale at such an early point? Yeah, so I guess early on, we, we launched with a model which was uh, a deal a day and uh, that was based on Groupon. The, the boys at Catch had one called uh, Scoopon, which was a, you know, a, a slight connect <laughs> to uh, the Groupon name. And doesn't I, sound uh, anything like it. What no, do you mean? It doesn't, does it? But um, it was deal a day, but then Catch was, I guess, a bunch of deals and a bit more deep than the, uh, the focus model. And Groupon model, you know, that group buying model worked really well um, for a period of time. And, but what we, what we worked out was one deal a day um, was getting real traction and it would sell out and we would always tick over the, the volume needed to make the deal go live. So the group buying aspect of it became irrelevant because we were selling so much. Yep. And, uh, and then we realized uh, through accident really uh, because a couple of our producers that we were being featured were getting pressure to have their deals pulled off our site by some bigger players in the industry. I won't mention any names. Uh, could it, would, it, would it be one of the big two supermarkets? So just I, I will not be saying anything. <laughs> but um, there was pressure just from big, bigger guys in the industry and not just, you know, the big, big guys. There would have been lots of other people too because who are these young upstarts? Um, 
who we're selling now quite substantial amount, a substantial amount of wine, but also we were selling at better prices than it had ever been seen before. You know, through our relationships, we had to say to people because that was the model. You know, it's the best price, getting quick now before it sells out. And we had to say to our friends in the industry, like uh, call them up and say, "Hey, uh, I was wondering if." you could sell us your wine and us sell it at the best price that's ever been sold and we can't guarantee volume and, by the way, you're going to have to send it if we sell any. And that, it means a shit proposition. <laughs> um, and, uh, but we, because of our friendships, they did it for us and, uh, and then we quickly realised that we were selling so much volume that we needed to start buying it first, having it in our warehouse so we could handle sales because most wineries aren't used to selling that many from cellar door directly, yep, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Um, but anyway, and so what, but what we found was the bigger guys in the industry didn't like us very much and were putting pressure on uh, suppliers to probably not deal with us. And, and because of that, we would get some calls occasionally and there'd be really upset suppliers, um, sorry, producers um, saying, oh, my God, I, I really need you to pull that deal down. I'm in a lot of trouble with, you know, whether it's a distributor or other retailer because, you know, the pricing that you're selling it for. So no no anti-competitive behaviour going on here at all. Yeah, yeah none, none at all. <laughs> uh, none at all. It's, yeah, all above board. And so we got that. Uh, and because they're our friends, and, and some of them were quite upset, you know, at times, tears because of the threats, really. And so we would pull them down because we were friends and then we'd have to put up a second one. But yeah. what we realised in doing that is if you put up two, you sell twice as much wine. So then all of a sudden we did, all right, let's try three and let's try four. And then all of a sudden we, you know, we were having more and more deals every day and that's what kind of evolved into what we are today, which is, you know, we've got probably between 100 and 200 deals at any one time and we cover all the categories uh, to make sure that if someone wants a particular style of wine, they're always going to get a better wine at a better price from Vino. That's yeah. the model, you know. Um, it's super focused. We, we don't have, you know, 400 Sav Blancs, but the, the two or three that we do have from the different regions are going to be a better wine at a better price. And yes. so we just expanded it from single focused deal to... Let's cover all the categories, but super focused on the particular ones within those categories so we can buy more of them than anyone and deliver a better price. So I that's did, how it evolved. So from I one did have a look at your uh, Sav Blanc from France last night and there were only two wines in that category. I haven't tried either of them. I might yep. have to uh, put an order in. That's one of my favourite regions. Yeah, um, well, it's the, it's, it's the way we win. We just go deeper than anyone, super focused, and um, that means that we can buy it better than anyone, even the big guys, and that's why we win on price every single day, despite what anyone else promises, despite what anyone else says, we win every day, and, and that's why. But anyway, so getting back to the story, we're, um, so we're in this, in this kind of fast growth, early days, and we're sitting there as a couple of founders that have had a pretty hard three or four years, uh, pretty average Christmases, because my business partner was my um, brother-in-law, so when I had no money, he had no money, which meant my sister had no money, which meant my mum, who was working for us, had no money. Like, it was, it was you know, there was a roll-on in a lot of ways. A lot of responsibility. Yeah, huge responsibility. And, you know, that we were close a couple of times to throwing it in and getting jobs so we could actually d deliver some level of security, um, financial security to our families. But anyway... We get to this point, it's working, we're going, oh my God, like it's actually working. This is incredible. This is, we've never been in, in a business that has taken off this much. Like I've had successful businesses over the years, but this one was different and we were just seeing everything was like, That's and awesome. so there we were getting lots of pressure from other um, retailers trying to end our business. 
we uh, we were on this incredible run. A whole bunch of other competitors were coming into the market um, or about to, and we were like, oh god, what we've got to do now is to scale to a size where producers that we love and care about and want to deal with can tell the other guys where to go when they put unnecessary pressure on them to not deal with us. So we had to go from like here to like there and very quickly. And while the business was doing this, we wanted to leapfrog a couple of years to get to the kind of scale where you're super important in the industry. And so the choices were raise money, acquire people through marketing, do a... Uh, partnership with a media company or similar that already had a huge audience um, or thirdly uh, partner with another e-com player that had a large number of customers that understood the model. They were I guess the three options we looked at. We chatted to investors who were all very keen because all the metrics, you know, first time all the investors put their hand up. Uh, I'd never experienced that before. It was usually really hard pitch right. and then everyone going, eh, I don't believe this, I don't believe that, what about this, here's all the issues. We pitched Vino and everyone was like, yeah, I'll go in. <laughs> like, okay, this is a very different experience for us. Uh, so, yeah, we did that. We pitched. By the time the investors got their um, butt into gear, we were turning over more in a month than they were offering. You know, they were, they were very slow. There was a whole bunch of – there was an angel network and, and they were just slow and trying to put all these restrictions on us, like get half now and half in this period of time when you hit this metric. And we were like, oh, you're painful. This is so painful. This is an absolute winner here. And you're putting all these silly restrictions on us. There's a lot of good angels within each angel group, you know. It's not yeah. like it's a whole group. It's just some people in particular wanted to lead that um, investment were um, putting, trying to put too many restrictions on. And, and, you know, it's not the first time that's happened to anyone, but it was the first time that we were on an absolute winner. And it was more about, like, don't get in the way of growth. Let's go. Um, and they were slowing us down. So, like, by the time they finally put the offer on the table that was semi-acceptable to us, we were turning over more in a month than they were offering. So, we're like, we don't need it. And so, we skipped those guys. We went, uh, uh, a big media company approached us at the same time. So, they wanted to acquire 30% of the business uh, and give us access to all their audience. We went into a due diligence pro uh, process with them. And uh, once again, it was a very big company. And they were quite slow in that due diligence process and all the while we're still doing this. And they were going to offer you contra on advertising as their buy-in for yeah, equity? Yeah, there was, yeah it, was, it was access for equity. I, there was a small cash component too uh, and, you know, and resources to be able to um, acquire more. So that was, so that was a decent offer and, and it was only for a minority shareholding. And so that was pretty exciting. So we explored that. And at that time, those bigger media companies were investing in lots of other kind of companies, companies in this space and, and paying decent money for them and, and potentially then acquiring the whole thing at some point. And so we did explore it, went into due diligence, and literally they were supposed to finish and settle before Christmas that year. So it was going to be the first great Christmas we had for like a few years and we were super excited. We were going to open some champagne, celebrate with the family, celebrate with the team about like doing this incredible deal that was going to secure our financial futures and the business and the, and the people that work for us. And uh, yeah, literally two days out from Christmas when it was supposed to happen, we get this message saying, hey guys, we're not going to get there in time. We'll pick this up next year. And we're like, oh, how, how, def how deflating. How deflating and are you serious too? Like we are growing so fast. 
you promised to deliver it when you know before Christmas. The due diligence uh, period was ending on the like last day of the year, calendar year, which meant by the time they picked it up, we were out of exclusivity period. And yet they were so calm and so, oh, look, it's okay. Um, we'll just pick it up next year. We're like, we were uh, furious, to be honest. And we were like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, and also so devastatingly disappointing um, for us and our families and the team. So um, I guess in that moment when we were so uh, disappointed, we get this call from, we get this email first from um, Hezzy and the CEO at the time of Catch, which was Paul Reining. And uh, the email basically says, hey, guys, we want, we want to look, uh, have a conversation with you um, about potential acquisition. And this was like two days after or three days after the exclusivity period ended. Amazing. And so, Did they know? So, Did they have a sniff? No, no, they didn't. They Just literally... serendipitous, completely. Yeah, serendipitous. Um, unbelievable. And so, yeah, and so then they reach out. We got on the phone. They wanted to acquire all of us. And, and we're like, well, actually, we're really deep in a due diligence process. It's going to happen early in the new year, it's a really great deal for us. And they just basically said, look, um, we, we have a fair idea who it would be. It's one of these three or four people and let us tell you the difference. One, we're entrepreneurs. Two, we've done this before. Three, we're the biggest in the, this particular category that you're in. We don't do wine well. We want to do wine well and you guys do it. So let's partner. We're the most successful in each of the categories that we've entered. We'll pay you more money. We'll do it quicker, and we're like, "Good pitch." That's pretty hard to say no to. <laughs> Good pitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we're like, "Oh wow!" And they had at that time probably you know one to two million customers um, transacting through their group. Uh, we and we kind of did the calculations. They guaranteed to do it really quickly. They, they offered us more money. They wanted to acquire the whole thing. We didn't want that to happen, and we kind of reflected and said, "Well, look, we'd rather you know, a small chunk of something massive." than a big chunk of something smaller. Uh, they've got 2 million people on their database. Even if we get 5 or 10% of those, we'll be huge and we'll learn so much. They're great at what they do and they're going to pay us more cash. <laughs> so, like, sounds interesting. We did the deal with them, told the other guys that we were no longer interested. Oh, how'd they, out of interest, how'd they take it? Not very well. Um, there, was, there was someone in a rather large media company that was driving that that didn't move quick enough and they were not happy to say the least. Yeah. Um, there was, it, it ended fine, but you could just tell. There was not a lot of um, – they had to probably go and explain that um, up further <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, they'd fallen out of exclusivity, et cetera. So anyway, we did the deal with Catch. It was um, – I think it was settled uh, three, or, three or four months later. Yeah. Uh, we took some money off the table. They acquired 70% of the company. Uh, so we were left with 30%, which was smaller than we'd hoped, but also the deal was what we considered at the time pretty good. And we were part of the cash group from there. Got a heap of press around that. All of a sudden, we had deep pockets in terms of what we could buy. Um, we probably, I guess, grew by 50% within a couple of weeks just through wow. audience. Yeah. You know, it was off a small base still. I think when we went in, we were turning over maybe 4 million run rate or something like that. And then we were with them for a year. Uh, and I think we left at about a 10 mil run rate um, a year later. So, Terrific. you know, it, it was a good, but we're on that trajectory anyway. Yeah. And right. so, and so I don't, I reckon we would have got, you know, almost there regardless because what we did find, we learned a lot and it was a great experience. What we did find 
was their audience. There wasn't a lot of cross. There wasn't a lot of crossovers. A very different audience because while we were a daily deal in wine, we only focused on premium to super premium wine, and their audience was very much looking for bargain, bargain kind investment. of yeah, bargain bargain, bargain pricing. Yeah. So, so we so it was very different because you go oh it's daily deals it's this Groupon model originally and the types of wines you would expect to find in that type of business model aren't necessarily great. But when Andre and I created the business, we were like, the only way we're going to do this is if we focus on the wines that we love and we'll only feature wines that we love. And so they're the premium to super premium end of the wine um, space. And so bringing that kind of price point and that type of wine into an audience that was just looking for the cheapest possible price. Not good alignment. No, not good alignment. And and so... Well, it, I'll never regret it because we learned a lot through that year and we did get a lot of PR and we did get in front of a lot of people and all of a sudden the, you know, the bigger journos and papers and TV stations were interested and so that helped a lot. Um, but the actual audience um, didn't cross over anywhere near what we thought it would. So, um, yeah, so there was pros and cons. I think about six months or a year in, Andre and I um, and Lee, who was the other founder at the start, was um, we're chatting and going, you know, it's 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 good, but I don't know, it just feels different, you know. Like they were they were hands off anyway, so they weren't trying to influence us in any way, shape, or form. So they were great people to do business with. Uh, you know, expectations were high, but they were they were great. They they bought in because they trusted us and wanted to back us and. So in terms of uh, an acquisition or an investment, they were good partners. However, we still felt like we were such a small part of a pie that it wasn't that important within the business, um, in, in, I guess, in the scheme of things. And we weren't because, you know, they were probably turning over a few hundred million and we were turning over four when we went in. So, you know, we were nothing. You know, we were, you know, the kind of change that falls out of their pockets. And so... So at the time, we were like, oh, it doesn't feel that important. We've kind of, even though we haven't lost our independence, kind of feels like we've lost our independence. Um, we're not getting the crossover that we'd hoped for. Uh, we're in this big corporate office in the middle of nowhere. Um, it doesn't feel like, you know, us anymore. So we, we approached the guys and just said, you know, tentatively, hey, you know, what would you think about this? And up until that point, they, uh, they didn't, really take much notice of us because it was so small. And then after that point, they're like, oh, that's all. We love Vina Mofo. That's going to be expensive. Um, so in order to buy ourselves. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to ask. I mean, you know, you, you said you got a good amount of uh, um, cash forward on the sale, the acquisition. Um, coming back, I mean, you've obviously backed yourself. You bought it back. Did you have to dig deep to be able to uh, recapitalize yourselves to acquire it back? Yes, we did. Okay. Because, you know, one thing that they're not bad at is buying and selling stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, They've done remarkably well. Gabby and Hezzy have done an incredible job. And, and you know, the one thing that they're not going to do is is um, make it easy to um, no. to uh, make a profit off a purchase and sale within <laughs> no. against them. So um, we did pay more. Better, better you than me on that one. No, yeah, they, uh, no, they were actually remarkably good. I've got to be honest. They were they're great. Uh, and still got a good relationship. They're they're good people, and they understood why we wanted to get out. Um, they're entrepreneurs. They started that business in a garage. Yeah. We did the same thing. Uh, you know, a family involved. There was a lot of a lot of similarities, 
so they understood the journey, they understood the reason why. And so they, we negotiated over a period of a couple of months and about a year after we went in, we got back out. We handed over all the money that we gave, that they gave us uh, and uh, got a, a small group of Adelaide investors to come in and help us. Um, who the Adelaide investors took 25% of the company. We yep. got the rest back. Uh, and then. And did they keep any? Did they keep hanging on for any residual, Gabby and Hesse? No, no, no. no they they were completely out. They no. were completely out. Anyway, so we sold, bought it all back, and it was July of 2013. It was July 1st that it kind of changed over. And so they owned it, in, you know, June 30th. We owned it June, July 1st of 2013. Wow. Uh, and I remember, you know, we had no money. So we literally gave them all the money. So we were starting fresh. We had about 10 employees at that time. We moved into a small office in uh, Richmond, yep. uh, which, was, which was great, cheap, but great. And with a team, and we had no money in the account. And the transactions started coming in on July 1st. And whatever revenue we got from that was ours, and whatever was before was theirs. Just and on so those I think, uh, 10 employees, I think you stole one of my employees at that point, Justin. <laughs> a guy called uh, Michael Dilly, if he's, uh, if he's listening. I don't know if he's... Yeah. Michael Dilly came, uh, came probably a, a couple of years after that. A couple of years after that. Okay. Yeah, well, but, um, yeah, we'll square up on that one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, we went back and uh, we had it all and we had no money in the account and then the sales, you know, at midnight when it changed over, we were like refreshing the page to see you know if a salad came through and you know all of us are up at um after midnight going right refresh 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 does it still work do they still love us and um we had a sale come through a couple of minutes later 100 bucks and we're like yes you know, we're back we're back baby yeah we're back baby and then we realized we had to sell like uh, twenty thousand dollars to pay for rent and wages for next week so, uh, so we'll, we'll quickly over the joy and back to the stress to but we ended up doing remarkably well and from that point on the business just took off we won like you know a bunch of awards um we we got lots of media attention um and we grew really fast well listen i'm going to um try and tie everything together and finish off with a quick fire round you've given up a huge amount of your time um Who's been a professional inspiration to you? Professional inspiration to me has been Richard Branson as an entrepreneur. I've always found him inspiring. I think the more kind of close to home, the chairman on the board of um, Vino Mofo and the other directors are amazing, but the chairman, Paul Edgington, has been um, fantastic um, over the last little period. I've learned a lot from him. The kindest thing anyone has ever said to you? Oh, when I told my mother that um, she could quit her job and come and work for us full time, um, she'd been through a really hard period in her life, you know, marriage broke down, cancer, and, and she was doing all this work <clears throat> for us for free to help us get through. And so when I told her um, that she could leave this um, this job, which was pretty average and not paying her well and she wasn't treated that well, um, and come and work for her um, son. Um, uh, she then told me, because well, I called her on the phone, she told me um, later that when she got off the phone, um, she did a little dance. Um, That's magnificent. Yeah, That's did a little really dance and, and told me about the fact that she'd listened to me a few years ago about putting her goals and dreams 
up on a piece of paper to read every day on the fridge and she'd done that and one of her goals was to come and work for us so i think that was really nice credit to you that's a great story um from from the sublime to the ridiculous then if you got hit by a bus today and killed what's the one thing you would say i wish i'd done that well, I tell everyone I love them anyway, so it's not one of those kind of standard ones. But the probably the one thing that I haven't done that's been on my list of things to do for forever has is to swim with whale sharks. Um, red or white? Oh, it's like choosing your favourite child. Wow, that's so hard. Look, I'll say red. Better city, Adelaide or Melbourne? Oh, don't. That's just cruel. That's just cruel. My, my heart's with Adelaide, but um, I live in Melbourne, so that probably tells a story. Favourite red wine? Barolo or Barbaresco um, from Piedmont in northwest Italy, um, which is from the Nebbiolo grape, would be my favourite. And what I served at my wedding, outside of some great South Australian reds out of the Barossa, but, um, yeah, probably, probably if I had to choose... Pinnacle, it would be Barolo or Barbaresco. Favourite white? Chardonnay, hands down. Uh, and probably, you know, I love Burgundy and I love, so, you know, anything from uh, Chablis down. And then in Australia, you know, Yarra or Mornington, um, Chardonnay, Adelaide Hills Chardonnay. But Chardonnay is definitely the winner in terms of grape variety. Um, Favourite smell? Favourite smell? That's such a weird and wonderful question. Um, you know what? I'm going to weird you out and say orange blossom. So <laughs> so orange blossom, right? And you know why? Because it's in – I found out, I worked it out because I, I like smells. I mean, a wine guy, I, I love smelling. <laughs> like the taste and flavours and smells. And uh, I worked out that in a lot of my favourite aftershaves, there's orange blossom. Is there really? And yeah, and so I was like, so yeah, I discovered that years ago. So that's the weird and wonderful, but yeah, orange blossom would yeah. probably be my favourite. I love orange. For some reason, there's something about the smell of orange. Um, is it ever lost on you that you're in the alcohol game and your surname is dry? No, it is not lost on me, and that is a joke that comes up regularly. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Had to go there. Um, if you could go anywhere in the world for lunch now, and you can't, but if you could... Where would it be? Anywhere for lunch. It would be Sydney on a, a sunny, warm day, and it would be Hugo's at the Manly Wharf. It's nice. one of the great restaurants. It's got a good wine list, great food. The atmosphere is amazing, and it plays a very special part in my wife and my um, relationship. Very nice. Um, what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs? Wow, so much. I had to choose one, I think it would be, look, one, you've just got to give it a crack, you know, like I think a lot of people, you know, and there's so many other, and you can hear my baby in the background now. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, probably just uh, to give it a crack because there's so many other lessons, there's a million and one lessons that you could talk about for hours and hours, but most importantly, um, I would just get started because that's how you learn the most and all the other things can come later. But what you don't want to do is um, sit and wait and based in fear um, about giving it a crack because so many people and ideas never get off the ground because of that. And, you know, so just start. Yes, you're going to make a bunch of mistakes, 
Um, but you're going to learn a heap along the way. So I think if it was just anything, it would be just give it a crack. Get going. Well, Justin Dry, your story is uh, rich in learnings uh, with overtones of forward thinking and a blend of entrepreneurial magic thrown in for good measure, uh, best consumed with a glass of good red wine. Thank you very much for sharing and thank you very much for being on Discipline. Thanks for having me, mate.